Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Tim Jones at the Four Graces Winery, Doe Ridge Vineyard in Yamhill. It's uh, February 27, 2023. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the first question to get started is why wine? Why wine? Well, that is a good question. Um, I um, have always been interested in the outdoors and cooking and um, science and art have been something I, I was interested in as a as a high school kid, but what high school kid knows when you have to decide what you want to do at 17 years of age, which is what you're supposed to do, um, uh, what they want to do, and especially wine, right? So I ended up going to a liberal arts school, Willamette, um, Salem, and studied history and some biology and Spanish and rhetoric and all these things that I love learning about. but. Um, but weren't really necessarily focused on a career. Um, I still love the liberal arts degree and it's still valuable, but I, I um, went to South America, um, went to Chile, spent some time in Argentina and could afford wine there and um, as a college student or just anybody. And also um, a different drinking age as well, but I could go to restaurants and I loved the culture associated with it. Um, and I did an independent study project on wine um, and, you know, was thinking about it. I was like, this is something I could get interested in. Um, and uh, a family friend, I went back, so I went back to the United States. A uh, family friend uh, from New Zealand, actually was a winemaker in Walla Walla. I worked at Seven Hills there. And um, super nice guy, and he was talking about it, and I met him at my sister's wedding, and we were talking, and he says, well, why don't you work a harvest? Um, and so that was kind of where that started. It's not a good thing to tell your parents you're graduating from college and don't know what you want to do. Um, and so he had a couple different options. He described the lifestyle, which is you work harvest and you are part of a family, a team. Um, you live at the winery, you eat, they feed you. It's this whole connection to the season. It's all the things that winemakers want to do <laughs> all day long. Right, and a lot of people think that's what we do. Um, and so I worked in Sonoma County. I worked at, uh, got, got a job at Matanzas Creek um, at the time and lived on the winery. I think the reason I got the job was I had a Spanish, I could speak Spanish. And I was gonna be living with some Chileans. And I remember the supervisor at the time, she ran the laboratory. Um, she said, I'm gonna take a chance on you. <laughs> and I appreciated that. And I came and I worked there in Sonoma County and, um, and it was beautiful. And I lived on, I mean, it was everything you wanted. Um, and I realized very quickly, this is what I want to do as a life. And she helped me out. She said, you know what? If you're going to work in the wine industry, and this is particular in California, particular Sonoma County, you'll need a degree, you know? Um, and so there's a few schools at the time I was looking at. It was Fresno and um, Fresno State and UC Davis, Cal Poly has a program too getting bigger. And um, I wrote these places and they said, who are you? Like, get lost, kind of. Um, I mean, I didn't have the chemistry background. I didn't have any of that. And so a lot of the universities in California, university system is that if you've already gone to school, we've already spent time on you, 
you can't come back and do a second bachelor's. It was very rare. But the wine industry is different because who knows at 16 years of age, whenever you need to make 17, um, that they want to get into wine or that it even exists. So what I ended up doing was, at that point, I was just like, I know how to work hard. I can work hard. Um, my, my family has a strong worth. My dad is a forester. My mom is a, a librarian. But like, it was one of these things like, we can work. We can do this. Um, and so uh, I just took that, like, this is what I want to do, and I will not stop. So I worked, um, I, I left Matanzas Creek um, because I needed to work at night in order to go to during school during the day. So I worked at um, this place, that, like a, a wine lab that fixes wine, like alcohol and adjustments and all these different things. And that was in Santa Rosa. But I went to school at uh, during the day uh, at Santa Rosa Junior College. Um, which was so reasonably priced and so great. Um, it was hard to get into the classes. I remember um, that they would, uh, this is gonna be a two hour interview, isn't it? Um, but it, <laughs> you got me talking. And I, I, this is also therapy, uh, so it's nice to, for me to go back um, in time and think about these things. But um, so Santa Rosa Junior College, I tried to get into the chemistry class and it's filled with all of these, these people who are trying to get in the chemistry class because it's basically the same class as you'd have in Berkeley. In, in fact, if you're going for your first bachelor's, it translates. So you might as well do your first two years at Santa Rosa Junior College paying $20 a unit at the time, um, which was amazing. And um, I remember flipping, no, picking a number between one and 10 because there wasn't enough room in the class to get me. And I needed it at a certain particular time for work and all that. And um, I got the right number, and so they let me in, and there were like 50 of us at the beginning. By the end of the class, there were about 15. So all these people who started, and I, I kept on, and I was working nights, and I don't recommend doing this. I wouldn't do this again, but um, like I worked at night. I went to school during the day, and I took all the OCHEM and all the chemistry and did all this work. And in the meantime, I was also working like weekends at with other winemakers. I was working in Dry Creek making Zen. I was working in Russian River making Pinot. I was doing whatever I could to build my resume. Um, and I was working at this wine lab as like my, my night job that would um, work with a lot of different winemakers adjusting alcohol, which was interesting because I kind of thought, this is just going to be for cheaper wines. It was not the case. It wasn't just for meeting like a certain tax requirement. It was um, all across the board, all price points. And so I got to meet winemakers and you get to interact with a lot of different people. Um, so I went to school for a long time in Santa Rosa, worked a bunch of different areas. I love the area um, and uh, got into Davis. I moved to Davis um, and a little concerned um, about going to Davis because I was worried that everybody was going to be either way too geeky, like just interested in the process, you know, very engineering focused, or they were going to be incredibly wealthy and have like, you know, generations of, of winery background, right? It was not that way at all. It was a bunch of people who were like, hey, I love to cook and brew on the weekends and make cheese and do you want to bury an amphora in my backyard with me? And um, I mean, it was so much fun. We traveled around, we did, we would, uh, it opened doors, we could go to like, Mount Eden Vineyards, we came up to Oregon, um, we went to Washington, we traveled through the Central Coast on trips on like, you know, as a group. And it was, it was awesome. Still friends with a lot of these people and that has been very valuable um, just because we can talk about wine, um, 
and you know their passion, and that has been a lot of fun. Um, and so I have not since basically deciding to get into wine around the age of 21, I haven't regretted it. I mean, I got, I'm lucky. Um, I, I love all aspects of it. And, and as my kind of understanding of the industry has grown and, and what I do, I, I feel lucky that I chose the right thing. Um, my, my understanding of the industry has changed and grown. Um, I've gone on for more schooling and different jobs, but, but I always come back to, to the passion and that is actually a great thing about hiring people, especially that age, because you reconnect with, oh, they're passionate, they love, you know, I need that, I feed off of it. Uh, interns, um, assistants, seller, any of that, when people are passionate again, I love interacting with those folks. And even in the market, you know, if you're talking to a Sam who wants to um, talk about wine or, or you want to interview talking about wine history, it's, it re-energizes. So after visiting South America and kind of finding uh, the, at least the beginnings of a passion for wine, as you started to get into the industry, was it what, was it what you expected? And, and if not, what was different about working in wine than what you anticipated? So what I anticipated early on, I think this is a lot of people, is that it's the idea of like, oh, you're tasting all day and you're just like looking at, you're in the vineyard all day and you're doing these things. and. Um, it's very science focused. What I realize is that as you grow in the wine, it's about people. It's about managing people. It's about relationships with people. Um, the science is still there, but the science requires, it's not as complicated <laughs> as people. Um, just, like any, just like any work experience. So, um, uh, and and I, kinda, I can see parallels in different jobs too. If you're a chef, or you're starting a restaurant, or you're you know in any kind of any kind of job, or you're teaching. Um, so I see that has that has changed. I I um, I also you know I, I talk to friends about this about when we're first getting into wine, we're thinking about the wine that we want to make. We were thinking about what what is in an area. And I remember a friend of mine. She described she works in Napa. A lot of my friends work in Napa. She's like, well, Napa's too hot for Cabernet. I remember just such an audacious thing to say. She's like, we should be growing, I don't remember what it was, it was probably Nero de Avila or something like that. We should be growing that. And I remember thinking, that is such a winemaker thing to say. Because I remember talking to her like, wait, who, are you in the wine industry? Or are you in the wine lifestyle? And I think those are, that's a legitimate question to ask. Because if you're in the wine industry, like what's the market for? And maybe she loves Nero de Avila, maybe she can show that, but she is fighting against like a market of like Napa Cab. You know, you're not, anyway, I mean, you can, you can do that for a small amount, but um, I just thought it was interesting. And I, and I asked people about that kind of like, it's for, and I've come to realize that like, I love, I love the wines I make, but I'm also realizing like, do other people, do you know what I mean? It's for other people, it's for a market, it's to show and how people will enjoy that. And so I've kind of become more comfortable with my role as a winemaker is not forcing something on somebody. It's not, um, I'm not a marketer. Um, I'm, not in, I'm not necessarily in sales, although like, that's definitely part of my role. But, um, but I, I, I understand my place is with the product, with what's in the bottle. Um, and that gives me satisfaction. Um, and that's my, that's my area of expertise. Um, and that 
provides some comfort. It provides like people will love the labels and they'll say, oh, I love your labels. And I said, that's fantastic. I didn't really do that. But you know, I'm glad you like it. And, and it's comfortable in, in that way. Um, and I think that's, a, that's important for winemakers to understand that if they go off and make their own wines, I remember having some really good discussions, arguments with friends of mine about like, you won't be making the wines as much as you want to because you will be selling or you'll be in the market or you'll be dealing with distributors or the basics of running a business. Just as if you were running a restaurant and you're like, I love to cook, I'm gonna start a restaurant. Well, you know, um, maybe that's not what you're gonna be doing all the time. Uh, I'm fortunate in that I am making wine. I still want, you know, I want purple hands and I want to be able to do those kind of things. So um, that's, that's how I see my role. You talked about your kind of experience at Davis from the, sort of the social and, and building your connections aspect. I'm curious about the educational aspect of Davis. What, what did you take away? What were the biggest sort of takeaways from there? And did it alter your plans at all? Yeah, so that's, that's really good. So, Really great professors um, I had there. I worked under, I went and actually I stayed on for a master's with uh, Andy Walker in viticulture. Um, Davis doesn't teach you how to make wine. They're not telling you, you must make this. And I think that's kind of a misconception is that Davis is like, you must do this. You must filter this way. You must, it's teaching you how to think about wine. It's, and you're not being trained by winemakers. You're being trained by people who are, they're scientists, right? So they are thinking like, how would you evaluate this trial you want to do? Or if you're going to do that, these are the risks. Um, a lot of my friends who uh, went to school there are natural winemakers, which are like, and they went to Davis. But they also realize like Davis gives you the background to assess your choices and to have like, and to have to be able to rationalize it um, and think about it. So um, it's teaching you how to think about wine from a scientific perspective, which was valuable to me because I thought that I could go and I'd work for many different winemakers and I could learn from many different winemakers how, the right way to make wine. But there isn't one. And, um, and so I find that like going to Davis opens up my eyes about that and understanding like what's important, what's not important um, in that way. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, we, I went to, took classes, distillation classes, brewing classes, um, but good school. I was there, actually. I was the first assistant winemaker. They built a new winery there. Um, Mandavi's gave quite a bit of a of donation. And so they built a LEED Platinum Certified Winery. Um, and I worked there when I was a grad student. Uh, worked the first harvest there. So I was kind of there in the transition from the old, kind of broken down fermentation hall to the new one. Um, and it was, it was great to see that time. I, I thought I was going to just graduate with a second bachelor's, but at that time, the economy crashed. That was around um, 2010, and there were a lot of there wasn't a lot of hiring, um, and that's always a concern, kind of in the wine industry, is that how are you going to get a job? <laughs> There's so many so many winemakers who are turned, you know, who are in the industry, and you can either like you can get lucky, you can be an intern for a long time, you can you know. But I also had student debt. Um, so I needed to figure out how do I make this, how do I continue on my path, maintain my passion, make wine that I love, make it work. Um, and so I decided at that time, I am going to educate myself more. And so I went, to, I have a master's in, in viticulture because I thought that was an area where um, a lot of winemakers are making critical decisions without an understanding of it. So um, I stayed on for that. Um, 
Can I keep going? Please. So I met my wife uh, at Davis um, as well, and we graduated, and we decided that, and that's when I actually made the move to Washington State. We had some student debt. Um, we, I was looking at jobs kind of in the area, and it was like, okay, well, I looked at Napa Valley and Sonoma, some of the area, particularly like Sonoma, um, but it was going to be a waiting game. It was going to be, you know, you're going to be an intern, it's going to be a while, and there's just so many people with a degree trying to find jobs there, and it's expensive to live. So, um, um, and I didn't, I think my nightmare of all, the, all winemaking is to not be utilized, right? It's to be like kind of on the bench going, okay, what are we doing, you know? Um, and that's, that's my nightmare. So uh, St. Michelle, a friend of mine worked for St. Michelle in Washington, and uh, a mentor of mine, really critical to have mentors, um, I talked to him. I said, what do you think about working at St. Michelle? And they said, we'll bring you in as like associate winemaker, we're going to pay you a, a good salary, especially for the cost of living in Washington, and we're going to utilize you, basically. And I thought, great. And so I got hired, and, um, and I was a little worried that I was going to, in a large company, because I hadn't worked really for a large company, that I was just going to be kind of pigeonholed into one particular thing. Um, but but I, was, I was super excited to be, to have skipped a few levels, right? To have gone from being like intern for many years. I mean, some folks can pass that up, but that was a, that was a concern of mine. It's also interesting, so mentors of mine graduated from Davis in the 70s or 80s. And they had an interesting view of like, well, you graduate from Davis and they give you a winery. You know, you're like, you know, you're like winemaker in a year. Maybe you're assistant. And that's really how it was. You see, like you go back and you look at biographies of people and you see like, well, they, they graduated from Davis or they worked maybe in harvest here and then they were a winemaker like so, so quickly. Um, and that's not the case. You know, I had to go on for a long time of school um, and worked many harvests. And, uh, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot about timing and good fortune. But again, like I just, I, I could work hard. Um, and, uh, and that's how I felt like I um, was picked up by Washington. And it was nice because um, they were happy to have me. <laughs> it was great. So tell me about your first experience there after having worked kind of primarily or only in, in California. What was different about the Washington wine industry and what, what was your sort of role as you got started? So differences in the Washington wine industry are that, so I work for St. Michelle, so it is, it is like at that time especially, I think 70% of grapes, maybe 60% of grapes are in Washington are harvested for St. Michelle. So they had a lot more resources than the smaller places that I, that I had been used to. Um, I remember trying to figure out my role at the time was, I was used to dragging the hose, to doing all the work, you know, writing the work order, considering the work order, doing the work, cleaning up, doing it all. And I realized that my job was more making sure like things were done correctly and more of like in a supervisory role. So I learned about that. I learned about teams and, and delegating, the importance of delegating, um, which is critical. Um, a lot of folks have difficulty doing that, um, trusting other people or kind of understanding a role. But delegating is a very difficult thing for or most winemakers, I think, to learn to say, okay. And I also noticed I'm not as good <laughs> in the cellar as I used to be. Um, uh, I'm not as fast. I remember kind of being in the way sometimes. 
Um, even though like my ego would be like, oh, I can do these things, and I realized like, no, I should be doing the things that make sure the work is being done and planning and tasting and doing those things that are critical for winemaking. Um, so I, I learned that. Um, I also, I learned a lot of, like I was able to apply a lot of technical winemaking. Um, we had, I had a lot of wine to, to work with. And um, a lot of teams, a lot of expertise. Um, and we were making, at that time, it, the industry was booming. It was growing quite a bit. Um, so I worked on many different brands. Um, I got involved with sales as well. Um, and they uh, funded, I went back to school. I got a master's in an MBA. Um, and they they funded that, and that was fantastic. Um, and um, yeah, at, the, at a certain point, though, and I can describe my move to here. What I realized was I was getting into a lifestyle of like I, so a big company like Saint Michel. Um, you're making wine for multiple brands, and you're making wine for multiple brands. And let's say a brand is more expensive than yours, than, that, than the particular, they can look at that and they can come as a team and go, we're taking your, 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 you know, your favorite block of a lot of wine or your vineyard that maybe you've worked on for a long time. From a business perspective, of course it makes sense. It totally makes sense. You, you're going to put that expensive wine in the most expensive bottle you can, despite what you're not going to hurt Tim's feelings. Um, and so that would happen quite a bit where I would work with something or, and then like to replace that, they'd be like, oh, here's our not so good. And that just happens, it happens in every large company. Um, and that was hard to deal with. And I realized, I found myself as like, because I was the Davis guy or you know, technical winemaker, is that I was fixing wines a lot. Um, and that can be satisfying, it's a way to learn, but it's not long-term what I wanted to do. And I found myself in a, in a position where I didn't want to be. My, we were expecting our second child, we needed to buy a bigger house, and it was a time my wife was pregnant actually. Uh, and I remember thinking like, do I stay or do I go? We could stay here, it was comfortable. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know necessarily what was going on with the economy, of course, but um, this job opened up where it was small lot. I mean, the vineyards are right there. It was hands-on. It was closer to the reason why I got into winemaking, right? Which is I wanted to be authentic and I want to make something that I'd be proud of in that way and like have, and see it all the way through. Um, and so, and I, I have family in Oregon. I love Pinot Noir. I love the challenge of it. It was, I was, I actually tried to, to work here earlier, um, uh, and they weren't as welcoming to Davis winemakers <laughs> at the time. Um, uh, so, um, so we decided to make the move. Yeah. And that was, that was a big risk. That was a challenge, but, um, I don't regret it at all. And, um, I think back to, you know, um, a bigger company and when you're working with different brands and like maybe a different brand will, will take wine from another brand. Um, I actually work on Acrobat and so, but I'm the winemaker for that as well. So I am the one moving wine around and, and, and so it's just me. So I, I do appreciate that and, and I like that freedom to be able to do that. So before we pick it up at, at coming to Four Graces, uh, I'm curious about, you mentioned uh, one of the things that should I say Michelle was uh, an increase in sort of leadership and de delegation and building building teams and things like that. So tell me about that, that for you, that sort of process for you going from kind of thinking of yourself as a seller person to thinking of yourself as more of like a delegator and leader. Uh, what were the 
big stumbling blocks for you and what were the kind of the lessons learned there for going forward? Yeah, so a major thing um, when you're coming into a new team, people have their way of doing it, right? And, and, it's, and it's like time honored, this is how we've always done things and I run into that wherever I go. This is how we've always done things. And at first, you've gotta have trust. You've gotta be able to build trust um, with that team and that can take some time. But then I also just have the expectation like, listen, we are always going to change. We are always going to get better. We are, I mean, just get used to that. If you're working with me, like I am, I'm not comfortable with like, oh, I know what I'm gonna do for the next 10 years. I always wanna be changing, always wanna be growing. I love that about the industry. Um, and so that is something I think that I took away, you know, uh, from working with St. Michelle is that, you know, you want that constant improvement. And I, I, that factors in here. Um, I'm not comfortable with just the status quo. But working with teams, um, so they need to trust you, that you have you know, the, the, the best interest for the winery in mind and for the team. Um, but then you also have to trust them. You train, you work with people, you trust them to, like winemakers need to be at certain critical points. Um, critical points in the vineyard, critical points for harvest, critical points for tasting and blending. But then, like, once you've done that, once you've kind of planned, you can step away in knowing that your people, like, they're gonna do a, they're gonna do a better job than you. Do you know what I mean? They, they've been doing it, they're, they're great at it, and so they can execute your plan. During harvest, I need to stay about a week ahead, at least a week ahead. You can kind of plan out harvest. Here it's challenging because of weather and, you know, difficult varietals, but, um, but I try to stay at least a week ahead of my team so that I don't, stop and start and go and you know and because people really do uh, and especially at large wineries um, it you, you know you burn people out you wear them out um, so the more I can kind of stay ahead doing the critical things of winemaking the more the team can flow easier and and, and that um, so those are some some um, some things I learned working for a larger winery and the other thing is, I'm not scared of volume, small, large, I've seen it all. So people are like, wow, that's a lot of wine. I'm like, it, you know, it's gonna behave in the same way. Or that's a small, small lot, or, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You can definitely, for small lot winemaking, you can take little sections of the vineyards and you can find distinct qualities about that. And that is important for winemaking. But the idea of like large scale and, and, and those, those things are not, not uh, I wasn't, I'm not scared of those in Oregon. So before you got here, what were your sort of impressions of the Oregon wine industry? Um, I loved, what I loved about the Oregon wine industry is people in other, so in California and Washington, people kind of happen to work in the wine industry or they describe kind of themselves as something else and then they work in the, work at a cellar or something like that. Here it's, I am a vineyard manager, or I am a winemaker, or I am, and they're very passionate about that, and I, I love it. Um, I love, and there's definitely a very close, it's a very close, tight-knit group. Um, and um, so I love that connection um, with other people. Um, I love that um, the sense of identity of the Willamette Valley, especially in, in Oregon in general, is that we know we're, we're not gonna compete against California or Washington in terms of volume. So really, like our competitive advantage is quality. And it's finding the right place 
the right people, um, the right vineyards. So you talk about the move here and, and obviously working with Pinot kind of more exclusively and, and, and more primarily. Uh, so as you got here, uh, tell me what your kind of initial role was and how you, how you kind of looked ahead for your, say your first year at the Four Graces. Yeah, so I was hired as assistant or associate winemaker, assistant winemaker um, in 2018. The winemaker um, at that time here was um, Mark Myers. Um, and he, uh, he had me like, we were, I mean, I was hands-on, I was doing, I was being utilized. <laughs> I was, um, I mean, we, we were growing, the brand was doing quite well, um, especially our Willamette Valley blend. And at that time, um, Foley had just acquired Acrobat. So we had like increased production. And so um, I found my role is like, I could be in the vineyards and I was driving forklift. I got much better at driving forklift than I ever had. At St. Michelle, like, I think I was one of the few winemakers who was certified for the forklift because I wanted to be able to get barrels when I wanted to and not have to find somebody. But, um, but that was unheard of. But here, I mean, I was, doing, I was doing it all, right? I mean, we were working through bottling. I was in the vineyard. We were meeting growers. We were doing sales. I was doing everything, which in, in larger wineries, like departments would do. Uh, you'd even have people pull your own samples and lay them out, you know? Um, but here, I was like, I would, I would. I was doing it all. Um, and that was nice to reconnect. Um, and it kind of reminded me of how my harvest had been um, in Sonoma County, although I also had the authority to make decisions, <laughs> right? We could like, I'd be like, oh, I'm noticing this and, and we can make those blends. Um, Mark's uh, wife had a child uh, in 2019, right around harvest. So he decided, actually, he's a stay-at-home dad. So he left in 2019. I remember being like, just right actually during harvest, and I remember being like, are you you're leaving, Mark? So at that point, that's how I became winemaker here. Um, and, um, and I've enjoyed it. I mean, we've, we've gone through expansions here, um, and I've, I've learned a lot. I'm definitely, like I was saying, my nightmare would be not being utilized. I'm definitely utilized. In fact, I have to be like, okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna stay away. <laughs> from, I'm gonna focus on winemaking. So tell us about the, about the growth of Four Graces uh, and, and the Foley family kind of footprint here in Oregon. Yeah, so um, this winery was built in 2016 um, to, uh, to produce about, it, my calculation is around 250 tons, and that was um, all estate. Well, with increased distribution and, I mean, you could call it like sideways effect, but it's probably like post sideways effect but just good press um, and good wine that the Four Graces, particularly the Willamette Valley, um, started increasing in production and like sales. It got some, we got some good scores. So we've increased the size to this winery to 1,000 tons, so about quadruple, with about the same footprint. So that's been a challenge. Um, what we've done too is, um, there are certain things that, and just my philosophy, I'd rather not have 20 people when I can do it with a core group of four and keep them employed all year round. So we have things that, we have like pneumatic punch downs um, uh, that just make things in the, the layout of the winery. I'd rather have like good people, pay them well, they're safer. Sometimes I see interns running around with forklifts and it scares me. Um, yeah, and they're passionate, right? I need people who, are, who care. Um, 
about what they're doing. So I have a small, like a lean team, um, and then we hire, we try to hire, you know, the best interns we can um, for that. But um, the the growth of Four Graces has been uh, has been a good challenge, though. I mean, it's nice because. At, your brand is always changing. Your winery is always changing. It's never static, right? You're never like, oh, I'm just going to do this this number of cases or whatever. You're always there's always changes in the in the season, in the market. You mentioned the acquisition of Acrobat, obviously a, a, another another big brand under the same umbrella. So, uh, tell us about sort of managing. Uh, uh, that kind of standalone brand that is its own, kind of its own beast. So Acrobat is, there's, there's interesting, so in, in, in a winemaker philosophy, I think you have to understand if you're, if, if you're making wine for somebody to consume, you have to think about what you're making in bottle price. And what I've realized too, working in Napa and Sonoma is like, I might make something that's very expensive and I love it and I put all this work into it, Sometimes the consumer is, is not the same person who I thought they were going to be to buy. They're, they're maybe buying for status and they're just showing it as like a, as a thing <laughs> to, to just have. And, and so there's a, like I want, I also want to make wines that are affordable because some of the, the people that I love, I want them to be able to drink that on a Tuesday night. And so as winemakers, and I talk to winemakers and mentors and friends of mine, is that you think about who is consuming your wine and being comfortable with that. So there's some nice things about being, about making a wine, especially from Oregon, that's more affordable. Um, and so what that requires, so is, is, it's satisfying is that it requires more um, technical expertise. It's more about blending, because I want to make something consistent. I have to, I can't throw, I can't buy the most expensive grapes possible, and I can't use the most expensive oak, and I can't do those things, right? But I can make something that I'm proud of that shows like this is what Oregon Pinot Gris tastes like. And it should be true to varietal character. It shouldn't have, it shouldn't be overly, it shouldn't have too much winemaking influence in it. Um, and so there's a, there's a certain satisfaction uh, with making Acrobat. Four Graces in some ways is more simple. I, I have a state fruit. Um, I put it in good barrels, right? Kind of get away from it. But it also is like I'm very proud in that I can show oh, look at this little parcel, or look at this, what happened in 2020, or 2021, or 2019, I can show that, and so I can retain that. So I'm very fortunate in that I get to see the whole state, I get to see what's going on, I get to see like growers and meet these different people in different regions, and I'm making from the you know, high-end little estate block all the way to like um, a state blend that's over 100,000 cases, um, and it satisfies little different areas of my, my brain, my soul, my heart. Um, and, and so I'm very fortunate with that. And also, so let's say like I, I described how in the past I might be making something and somebody making a more expensive brand could take it or not take it. It's just me. It's going like, Tim, you're going to do this with this. And, and I can see that better. I, think, I feel like I can make better wine because it's all kind of within the team. So you took over as the head winemaker in, in 2019. Obviously, that's an interesting time to become a head winemaker in Oregon brand. So tell me about the next few years and the harvest in 2020 and 2021. Uh, what were the big, biggest challenges, the biggest obstacles, and what were sort of the solutions you had to come up with? So um, a challenge of 2019 was that the wines are beautiful. 
we're growing, we need to release them early, right? Because there, you run into that. And so that becomes, a, that becomes a question for winemaking and marketing and everybody about how do you, how do you make, you want the wine to be released at the right time. You want it to taste the best. But there's, a, there's also a business function and anybody who's owning a brand is like, but I can also release this. Do I hold on to it for longer? Do I release it? We're selling out of Four Graces doing very well. So 2019, um, it, it's, it's actually tasting really beautiful. And this is a challenge is that like, but people have already drank it, you know? So you want, as, as a winemaker, you want people to lay down the wine, but you also want them to drink it because we all need a job. And I, I need to like have the winery emptied to bring in the next vintage. So there are, um, there's, there's satisfaction of being able to make wine that can be consumed young and, and understanding that's gonna be a bit more tannic, but I also wanna be representative of the vintage. So um, it's, it's, um, it's a good problem to have though, right? Is that people want your wine. So overall, it's a really good problem to have. But that was a, that was a challenge of 2019, is that I feel like the wines are drinking beautifully now, but there just aren't that many of them <laughs> because, because they've been, you know, they've been, they've been sold. Um, 2020 was the hardest vintage I had ever worked. Um, I spoke to friends who I went to school with in up and down the valley in Washington, California. They said, Tim, this is the worst harvest since you know, prohibition. This is really hard. Um, in that uh, we had COVID, right? COVID, and so we're all masked up or you know, social distance. We have all that. Um, I'm new in winemaking to this role. So my first like vintage from the beginning. And then um, I have new, a new team because I'd hire an assistant, Rachel, who you, you met. Um, and then um, we see fires. And I'd known from the experience in Washington and, and California and working with these, with Pino in the past, um, it's done, it's done. Uh, so we worked really hard to harvest early. Um, and luckily, so, and we did what we could. We did what we could. We, we learned a lot and there's some things maybe I would have done differently. Um, but, uh, we didn't really make any red wine that year. I was worried I was gonna lose my job, actually, um, because we had the family, the ownership come and taste, and realized um, that uh, we couldn't release it as a Willamette Valley, um, so that was a challenge. Um, some people you know, say they didn't get hit or didn't, and that's for everybody to make up on their own, um, but we did. This vineyard right here was impacted. I guess that's the one thing I love about Pinot is that like everything that happens during the season, good or bad, or whatever you do in the winery is gonna be reflective, it's very transparent. Um, and you can, I mean, I've tasted uh, other folks and I've actually tasted with family and, and sometimes they can pick it up and sometimes they can't. And so I reflect on like whether we made the right decision. From my perspective, we did um, make the right decision to not bottle it red. I didn't make any acrobat either um, because those vineyards, there's a lot of vineyards from um, Silverton area Mount Angel, and those were incredibly impacted. So just, you know, you work really hard, you're, I mean, you're trying to get all the fruit in, and it's just, it was tough. I mean, it was emotional um, harvest. Uh, I made a little bit of white wine that year, um, and then um, we kind of took the time to look at brands and, and perspective about making reserve wines and what those mean. And there's the new kind of reserved here, which we've been working on called the Graces. And it, it basically is giving me the freedom to make the best wine from every vineyard, which is what I want to do. It, it, in the past, kind of had been maybe just 
based on a particular block or a particular clone. But what I'd rather do is sometimes blocks don't perform as well. And you need to be able to taste, you need to be able to adapt, especially here. Like, I don't have a uh, winemaking recipe. You need, it's just adapted to the season, to the, to the vintage. Um, I, I love that. Um, it's actually in some ways it's like job security too because um, I don't just have like a protocol or a recipe, just do this. Because you need to be able to taste, you need to be able to react to what's going on in every ferment. So, um, so our new graces tier is basically like, what did I think was the best? And that, that gives me some freedom to, um, to make those calls. So coming out of 2020, like you mentioned kind of that fear of like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, do, I didn't do what I needed to do or, you know, am I going to lose my job? Uh, then you go into 2021 and have its own kind of unique set of challenges. So I'm, I'm curious about uh, sort of bouncing back and how, how the last couple of years have gone as the, as the company has grown. Yeah, we, I mean, I was fortunate coming out of 2020 and that, the, I mean, a lot of people are not in the situation where they can skip a vintage. And I, I get that, right? I mean, we're, I'm very lucky in that we are able to skip a vintage. Coming into 2021, um, people are like, we want your wine. We need wine. <laughs> you don't have any wine. So there's a challenge. So you have to set like a certain parameter of like, okay, what am I going to do? What can I do to, to maintain quality, but make, you know, make wine released early. So one of the, one of the things I'm most proud of, actually, is, um, and no, nobody's going to know about this, but it's like from a technical standpoint, we we're actually able to make uh, Acrobat Pinot Gris, um, high quality bottle in November. So we're harvesting in October, bottling in November. Challenge, but like if you reduce it down to like its parts and like looking at things and how you can do it, and we were able to get it um, in the market, um, this is the 2021 in November. Um, which, like, I remember talking to um, some custom, because we work with a lot of custom crush winemakers in this, and they're going like, no. And some of them were like, we're going to try that challenge. Yeah, we could, you know. So um, maybe I've opened a floodgate in that, like, I think marketing realizes, like, oh, well, how come, how come you guys can bottle in a few, you know, weeks? It, you can. You can. You can do things. And the wine is, I'm, I'm proud of it. Like, from a technical standpoint, it's not winning an Oscar, like, on the red carpet, but the technical Oscars, you know, that nobody watches, um, that uh, I, I feel like we'd be up for something like that uh, in, in Oregon. You know, challenging climate. Um, I know there's winemakers in California who work for larger companies who are like, well, we do that all the time. but but they don't understand what we had to do. Um, so uh, that, was, that was a challenge. For four graces, you, you need to, I wanna maintain, of course, like there's nothing I can do with our, our red wines in order to make them more released early. I mean, there's things I can maybe do with like extraction, tannin, but, um, but you have to like put your foot down, you know, and work and hopefully have the support from, your, from, from management and the ownership that, okay, people are just gonna have to wait. So um, we released the 21, and for the last few weeks, I've been out in the market, kind of a, almost a relaunch of the brand. People saying, I used to get Four Graces, where is it? Um, it and it's so funny, because we didn't go anywhere, we just skipped a vintage. And so I was in LA and Washington, and people are excited about the wines. We just got good scores too, and so it's exciting to, like I'm not making wines for those scores, but for some people, like, it's important, you know, for some people who are like at a grocery store, they don't know. Uh, but I, um, so that's, it's nice to have that just as kind of a secondary. 
You mentioned being out in the market. So uh, tell us how your role has evolved in terms of out, outside the winery work. What, what, is, what is your kind of typical month, week, day look like now? Yeah, so I'm realizing, so working on brands and, and um, in the winemaking is that I need to delegate. So I have Rachel as an associate winemaker. She's promoted to associate. She does the day-to-day. -day. She's got a great palate. I trust her. She makes really good decisions. She's got a great team. So she does the day-to-day. Right? She'll like kind of plan, and we'll come up with a calendar for a month about what we want to get done for that month. But the more I can give her flexibility, because in winemaking, um, you need to be able to change. I don't want to tell her, use this tank, use this. I mean, that is just so inefficient. She needs to be able to, um, she needs to, be able to make those decisions. She also needs to be able to do my job. Do you know what I mean? She needs to, I mean, you want to train somebody who's, who's able to do, who can step in and say, oh, I, I got that. Um, so she does, she's planning for that. Um, she's walking by. And uh, um, so she'll, she'll take care of that. And I try to stay ahead of like, okay, like long term, this is when we want a bottle, kind of case production, what we're looking at, vineyards and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, I spend, the idea is to spend more time in the vineyards, more time in the market as well, which um, was not like my first love. I didn't, I didn't know it. I think very few winemakers are that way, but what I realize is that if you talk to people about your passion and you're legitimately like, you're in, I love what I do, people want to hear about it. They're in, I mean, I, I was in Washington and I might be at a uh, Safeway or I'm at a bar or I'm at a restaurant or wherever I'm at, depending on if I'm, we're selling Acrobat or the Four Graces, um, and you say you're a winemaker, people are like, well, I want to talk to you. I want to, and I just think like, well, I'm just Tim. Like nobody, and, and I live in McMinnville, so nobody really like. It's not that big a deal. But if you're in, you're in Florida or you're in, um, you know, in Washington, some places, people want to talk to you, and they're energized by that. So when I come back to doing what I'm doing, uh, it's energizing. It's like people. It's nice to be able to see people enjoy what you've been working on because you don't know. You don't know. You don't get to see. You know, people tell you stories about how oh this wine. This was one of our first dates. We were in New York, and this is how we, you know, and they have such connection to that that you don't know about. So I'm learning, like, my voice in the market is just to be, just to show people, like, that I, that I care. This is what we do. Um, it's also nice being in the in Oregon and these varietals and that, like, you don't, my winemaking style is not, like, it's not recipe. It's not, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make I'm gonna do like winemaking all over this, which is like, I'm gonna oak it and I'm gonna make it this way, which, you know, in cer certain ways are like, it has to be this way. Um, I don't. I want it to be like res respective of the place. Um, it's a little cliche, I realize, but it's very important here to have wines that are respective of place. So if somebody's like, I don't particularly care for <laughs> whatever you did here, it's not me. That's, oh, you just are not a big fan of Yam Hill Carlton or that, you know, so um, I think that's important. Also, the place is going to live a lot longer than I am. Like, I don't want to make Tim Jones style that will be, that's going to try to follow trends or whatever, what I particularly like. I want it to be more reflective of place because that is long term much more important um, for a region than me trying to make over-extracted or under-extracted or oaked or I needs to be a certain bricks before I harvest every year or any of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm trying to make it representative of the place. I realize like it's, under, it's through a winemaker lens, but I, I, that's my effort. I don't want you to taste winemaking in my wines, you know?
You talked obviously about vineyard uh, throughout this interview. Obviously, uh, you got your masters there, and, and I kind of keep coming back to working in the vineyard. Tell me about the vineyards you're working with here. Uh, how much time are you spending with them, and, and how do you go about sort of getting to know a vineyard that you're working with? Yeah, sure. Um, so now we are we have more estate vineyards. So early on with the Willamette Valley program, we were buying from more growers and. We would, you know, you experiment, you're, you're looking at what they're doing, um, and I'm, uh, and as our estate program grows on, I have more control over our own fruit supply, which is very nice to have. Um, what I'm noticing is there is such diversity in the site, regardless of how you, um, who planted it or who's managing it. There's big differences in this vineyard right here versus our estate in Dundee. Um, and they're only a few miles away, really. So that is really cool for me to see. I mean, you can even see like color distinctions in the glass. We also have a state vineyard um, in a fairly new AVA called um, the Van Duzer Corridor. We have a vineyard there. Really windy site, completely different. So just from the wine geek perspective of like clonal differences and soil differences and rootstock, I can see the difference. I proved it to myself. I can see differences in that. Um, regardless of whether people taste or appreciate it in the end, I, I, I do notice it, and that's exciting for me. Uh, I want to spend more time in the vineyard. Um, and I think every winemaker would say that. Oh, I wish I would have spent more time in the vineyard. No winemaker's like, man, I wish I would have spent more time on budget meetings. Um, everybody's, that's what they want to do. Um, I think we're all pretty much the same. Um, it's also very, very humbling, and I like that because there's no room for ego for winemakers, especially here, because we're not, we're not winemaking it, right? We, we've got good fruit or a good place. And so I think like you're not really patting yourself on the back. You're, you're more patting yourself on the back like, I got through that challenge. Do you know what I mean? I got through 2020, or I did the best I could do. Um, so that is, that's exciting. Um, Working with Acrobat, so I am in Southern Oregon, I'm in the Rogue, I'm in the Umpqua, Silverton area, all over the state. So I see quite a bit of difference in practices and management and, and, um, and like I think I mentioned at the very beginning is that uh, kind of vineyards are easy and people are more challenging, right? It's about relationships, it's about working with people. And, and really I think anybody in, in any vineyard management or winemaking role would probably say the same after a few years. You're really, you know, it's about it's about working with people. So, what's next for the Four Graces as you look ahead? What are the what's on the horizon? So, the Four Graces, we there was a recent acquisition of the Black Walnut Hotel, in, um, and that comes with a state vineyard. So, we are working on um, like our reserve tier, figuring out how people buy wine, rather <laughs> like visiting tasting rooms, and our tasting room is doing very well. Um, but um, I'm excited about uh, Chardonnay. Um, we are working on some, and I think this is probably echoed a lot throughout the valley, is that, um, and there was a Chardonnay celebration last night, um, is that um, you know, the reputation and the quality of Chardonnay coming from the Wama Valley has been improving. I'm also interested in sparkling. Um, I've worked some sparkling in Napa before. But uh, I think that's exciting. And then we're also planting new clones. We're always evaluating this. So winemaking philosophy is, I mean, the wine industry is slow, right? We, vineyards are slow. It's very, it's about slow, conservative steps. It's farming. But I am excited about evaluating new clones um, 
here and uh, especially in the Van Duzer corridor. Um, I'm also, um, I'm finding I like, we're getting a lot of international interns and I'm excited about that. I would like to, I, I don't know, I want that connection with international folks a little bit more. So I feel like I've been, I've been kind of, um, I wouldn't really say a hermit, but we've been working on the four graces and trying to, trying to set this place up and do a really good job. But that's, I want to have like a little bit more international reach. So we talked to a lot of winemakers who are kind of similar, as you mentioned, similar to you, similar in age and similar kind of in, so tell us about sort of balancing the, the, the kind of crazy schedule of being a winemaker with, with out of winemaking, with, you, with having a young family and, and, and anything else you want to do. How do you balance it? That's the hardest. That's the hardest. It totally is. So I have, like I said, um, my fear and maybe my downfall is I don't want to be underutilized. Well, here in this job, I could be here all the time, all the time. And I could be, and I wouldn't do, I wouldn't necessarily satisfy everything that I would want to do. Um, and you have limitations in that way. So, I mean, I could be always learning about something new. I always find that, like, in my job, I'm interacting with an architect one day, a, <laughs> a wastewater, per, you know, um, vineyard manager, and then a distributor or somebody, you know. And so I'm often the least. I have the least amount of expertise in the room at any given time, whether I'm interacting with an accountant or any of those kind of things. And that's exciting, right? It's always changing. Um, but it's funny like that they want my, my input on, <laughs> on, you know, how many inches of concrete do we need and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I learn about those things. But um, I find that um, that life balance, that balance in wine, balance in life is the hardest to achieve, right? And I don't know if you get it all the time, but I'm now realizing like, and I'm working with my crew, we are setting up, and actually Rachel's working on this today, is like labor. How do we look at labor, not in the, not in the terrible way, but like, like labor, like it's really hard, but more of like, what do we need to do this job well and safe? What are the, how many interns, how many people, what are the jobs who are breaking it down into like a math problem? Which, you know, other industries will probably laugh at us, but um, it's important for me to set the standard to walk away and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna take a day off. I'm gonna do it. And it's because by the 16th hour of the day, I'm no good. I'm not safe. I'm not making good calls. And my crew, if they're out, and they're more expensive. And so like that, so we're setting up, uh, I wanna set an example of like, I'm walking away. You know, and I trust you and we're gonna do shifts and we're, I trust you to make good decisions and I want you to walk away too and to demonstrate that. Um, because I want, I want something long term. Um, it's a passionate industry. I don't think people should take advantage of that. People are very passionate about making wine. Um, and I also feel like it's time to go home <laughs> sometimes. And to be able to make that call is, is really important. Um, because I, you know, I want to be doing this for years. Um, so just like learning to get delegate, learning to go home is very important. And also, like I learn in my own job I mentioned I really care about what's, what goes in the bottle. And I care about packaging, of course. But I know my expertise. I know my lane. I don't necessarily get into, I mean, I, I can advise, but you know, um, trends in beverages or anything like that, I don't know. I, I, I don't know it. And, and in some ways, it's, it's a comfortable place to be. I don't know about White Claw. I don't know about, um, 
<laughs> these beverages, the trends, I, I, don't, I don't know. And it's funny because we were talking about social media and I should be on social media more, we were talking about that a little bit, but I also, I don't know it as well as I should or I used to. So I kind of like, I'm gonna, you know what, I'm gonna do what I do well and that's what I'm gonna make, make one. So tell me about the, the industry. You, you, you mentioned kind of being a hermit here and obviously the last couple of years have been pretty challenging for everybody. Uh, what have you seen now that you're part of the Oregon wine industry? What, what are the kind of the, the key, uh, what's the kind of the key ethos of the industry and what are the changes you've seen in the past couple of years? Yeah, the industry, so 2020 was like a, like an adolescence of the wine industry here. Maybe people have said that, but I feel like the, it's maturing. And so there's a really, there's a big, there's a lot of decisions for the Oregon wine industry to make in the next few years. Um, and we have, we have a big brother to the south in California, a big brother to the north in Washington. And we can see kind of pathways that they've, they've gone in promoting Oregon, or is it Willamette, or is it expensive Chardonnay, or is it more value priced? Is it all of the above? Um, uh, and I also see like kind of Oregon as, hey, we've always done it this way. Um, where I come into conflict is where I'm like every year I want to get better. Whether it's labor, I mean labor is one of those things, like mechanization is not a decision that people can just say, oh, we're not going to mechanize. We, we are going to mechanize. We are going to be better about using our resources, about taking care of the land, water. Um, even though we have water pouring out of the skies all the time, we see that in the industry and how we take care of the land, like we won't be that lucky in the future. So we have to be smarter about that. And we're fortunate in that we have, you know, industries that we can we can chart their paths. We can kind of see, okay, when California stopped talking about California, it was only talking about a particular site of Russian River or something like that. That there was some there's some splits or there's hillside ordinances or where you can plant. And so um, the it will be interesting to see where the industry goes. Um, in that way, um, and I, I do, I do, I really do appreciate how like we've always promoted quality. Um, I think that's what much more sustainable. But I do think that there's a future, as well, in making wines that are more approachable, more value priced. I don't think people are necessarily interested in paying a lot of money for wine, and so you see, especially um, people younger than me are looking at. You know, they, they're trying a bunch of different beverages, so. So as you look ahead then for Oregon, um, what are the things you're sort of looking ahead to, looking excited for, and maybe are the things that you're seeing, perceiving, uh, perceiving as challenges coming up? Yeah, um, so um, I'm looking forward to <laughs> having some good years after 2020, right? This is what I need. I want some to be, we're kind of refilling our supplies and having, we've had 21 was good and 22 was good as well. So we were actually able to make wine those years. So getting those wines out. And my goal is having more um, intention in winemaking. So I, I'm able to plan a little bit more um, intentional about, I mean, oak um, fermentation, how we make wines. Um, fruit sourcing, all of those things, and, and with more estate vineyards coming on, is having more. And my words give me intention, because that's I think the hallmark of wine quality. Um, some friends of mine can make beautiful wines, and they're more accidental. 
<laughs> I feel like I'm like, did you? So I always kind of ask, like, when somebody's making a wine or tasting, I'm like, did you want it to be this way? Did you, I mean, because maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Um, but that's that's where I see things going um, here, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about uh, new clones. I'm excited about Chardonnay, which I never thought, you know, when I first started, um, that I'd be super excited about Chardonnay, but I am. Um, and then um, challenges, challenges are going to be labor. Challenges is labor. Um, that has been difficult for a while, and I don't see it going away. And I think that affects all industries. Um, my, luckily, you know, my philosophy is I want to make sure we, I don't want people standing around, I want to make sure we have the best equipment that we can, more efficient, you know, processes in winemaking, so I don't need to rely, like, if I have one intern who doesn't show up, it's not like, well, I guess we're not making wine. Um, I found that um, we had some great ones from Argentina and Italy. There's that whole, like, traveling winemaker, and there's a certain, um, and I'd love to hire local as well, um, but there's a certain um, ambition, certain like gateway that the, to do the J1 visa, to do that process, to get to the United States, to do all those things, shows a certain amount of desire, drive, intellect. Um, and so when they come here and they have experience, they're fantastic. I, I've, I mean, they, they, I had a French a winemaker, she had like 12 years experience. She wanted to make rosé, and she was fantastic. And I was just like, you know. So, um, and th that's energizing. So we've had really great um, luck with that. But, um, you know, overall, I'm gonna, I'm a little worried about labor. That's a, that's gonna be a challenge. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. You know, definitely, it's hard for me to think about that many years out because so much has changed in such a short period of time that I almost think it'd be foolish for me to think like, oh, this is what's going to happen because I don't <laughs> and I don't want it recorded because <laughs> so um, I, I have no idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I mean, I'm excited to spectate it and I'm excited to take part in it. Is there a place for Oregon wine to aim? Is, is there, a, with, with the way it's grown, obviously in the, in the past couple of decades, it's, it's been on just kind of an upward, is there a place that it's going? Is there a, a, a status it could achieve? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I, my concern is that we would be targeting a particular region in France as like our benchmark. And, and I understand that, um, but um, I do want to maintain our own identity. Um, I don't want to get too focused on what they do or how they do it, and that's the right way. I think that there's a lot of tradition from France and, and, and fantastic winemaking and, and beautiful wines. Um, uh, I'm a little concerned that they're, pri they're priced a little too high for me. <laughs> I can't enjoy it. Um, but, um, but I don't, there, there's, a, there's a lot of lessons to learn. Um, but I don't, th I think that we need to have our own unique voice, our own unique brand recognition. I do love that we promote the region. I love that, you know, if my neighbor's doing well, we're doing well, right? And I, I love that aspect of, especially winemaking production, that's been a draw to me from the very beginning, uh, is that you just have to ask somebody and they will tell you. There's very, there's not secrets. I mean, there's where my grapes come from. You know, I ferment them. I, I, don't, I don't have some kind of secret ingredient, secret recipe um, for what we do. So, so I, yeah, I, I like that aspect, that, that openness, willing to help out neighbors. 
Not just sprinkling some MSG in there to make it magical. Can you do that? No. Um, yeah, no, no MSG. Um, but um, yeah, there's, there isn't any of that. And I do feel like a region does well, we all do well. You know, so we're all happy for that. We talked a little bit about kind of what's next for the Four Graces. Uh, tell me about what's next for you. What are you looking ahead to personally in terms of sort of uh, goals or challenges or new projects? Yeah, so um, I'm looking forward to spending a little bit more time with family. Um, you were talking about that, that work-life balance. So I've been working some long harvests and um, some long, you know, uh, when we're out in the market and um, I'm gonna take more vacation. <laughs> I'm going to do that. We kind of, you know, we're setting up the winery. We got some projects to do, but I'm hoping that like these things are more set and we can kind of plan more rather than react. So we can plan to um, to the future vintages. Um, so I have my kids are four and six now, so they're little, um, and I am enjoying spending time with them. And it's one of those times like I know I'll look back and go like, you know, why did I spend so much time doing this? I, I want to spend more time with my kids. So. That is really critical. I think people thinking about working in this job or any other job need to think about what does their life look like? What are your hours look like? How much travel? Um, so um, that's, that's important. That was going to be my next question and my final question for you was about advice for people entering the Oregon wine industry. So give me, if there's any more words of wisdom you have for people who are looking to get into the industry, what would they be? I have lots of words. I don't know if they're wise because they only apply to me. But I think about it, um, I do think about this a lot um, because I'm excited. I, I, so I've been very fortunate. I've had great mentors. I had good timing, um, all those things. I, was, I mean. You think about my first chemistry class when I went to the Santa Rosa Junior College, that was picking a number between one and 10. And if I hadn't got that, I mean, I don't think that would have been the hindrance, but like I got lucky and then I had my first mentor, first person to hire me, so we're gonna take a chance on you. Um, which was humbling too, because I thought, I'm good. <laughs> take a chance on me. Um, and, um, and so I, I would say finding that mentor, finding out what, kind of thinking more about what, diving into the whole picture of what winemaking is. Because I think for the first 10 years of the, your career, you don't really know what they do. Um, and there's a lot of other varieties of careers than winemaker, right? There's a lot of, I mean, there's so many different things you can be doing in this industry. Some of the best winemakers actually are selling products because they're going around to other wineries or they're selling barrels and they taste, they taste wines from all over. Um, or they work in restaurants. Um, so it's not just, you know, what you think is, is, is the best career path. Um, yeah, that's what I would, uh, that's what I would say. And, and also keep learning. I mean, at, I remember getting laughed at a little bit with a liberal arts degree, but I, I've got a liberal arts degree. I write the winemaking newsletter or I can, I can write an email. I can read a paper. I can, and you meet a wide variety of people. We can talk about these things. Um, so I think that those, those are always nice to have, that, that life experience um, is great to have, and it you know, helps your career. We'll not stand for any laughing at liberal arts majors on this, on this yeah. archive, so well, yeah. it's not happening. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a, it's a good, um, no, I, I like going to school. In, in some ways, I miss school. I do, I, I really like that aspect of, of continuous learning, in fact, it was hard to kind of say like, I think I'm getting off the bus here. 
I remember other people going on and saying like, oh, we're going to continue going and learning more about that. And I remember kind of realizing like, I'm going to get off the bus um, and stop. But uh, yeah, I have to continually educate myself. So I think I lied. I said that was my last question. I have one, one more question for you because you brought it up repeatedly throughout the interview. Uh, the idea of mentors. Um, give me an idea of uh, sort of the, the, you've talked about some of the mentors along the way. Um, how do you see that in, in yourself now as you have people working for you? And what are some of the kind of important points at which a mentor kind of pointed you in the right way on your journey? Yeah, so um, I've had some good ones. Um, I've had some mentors who, who are basically kind of talking about, they can give you life advice. They can tell you about where to work and where not to work. Um, what I found a lot about them is that they may be, we all realize that we love what we're doing. We all realize that we love making wine, but it's kind of finding that path, finding what satisfies you um, in the wine industry. So a mentor kind of has to know you, has to have a little bit of a relationship and realize like, okay. So I had a mentor when I asked, when I went to work for St. Michelle, I had a mentor. I talked to him. I've talked to friends um, kind of in their path as well. I could go on with stories about this. Um, there's lots. There's lots of stories, lots of good ones. But um, um, I find that every year I bring on Harvest Helper interns. I have like less in common with them as they, they're younger and younger and I'm getting older. So, um, but I still, and I, and I can see the difference between me and them and I, and I see, but I really want them to get an authentic experience. And if I can help them, I will. I really want them to know like this is what we do. So someone coming who's maybe their, their WSET3 and they want to work a harvest or something like that. I really want to be honest. I really want to be open. I tell them right away, this is what we're doing. It's cleaning. It's, you're going to be cleaning a lot, you know, and, and you're going to be doing these things. I really, I want to be a good mentor for them or at least to show them really this is, I don't want them to have to go to school and all this time and realize like this is not what I want to do. Um, so I, I work on that quite a bit. Um, and I realize, like, I stay in contact with a lot of the interns that I've had over the years. Um, it's nice to see where they go. Um, but uh, I've also had the, <laughs> uh, a lot of mentors are, and I realize it's for how you manage teams, how you work with people. Um, and I've seen things that are successful, and I've seen that are not. And I can kind of draw on that and say, like, oh, who do I want to be? Who, you know, how, what kind of leader do I want to be? And, I can see what's worked and what hasn't. Excellent. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? Oh, um, I like talking. Uh, <laughs> it's fun. Well, feel free. Um, There's a camera on you and everything. So a lot of friends of mine, and this has been interesting to spectate, is that they got into the wine industry um, and they work different career paths or it didn't quite work, or, but they've always wanted to make their own brand. And so I've had friends that are making their own brands and it's interesting because they've gone to school or we've worked together or they're in, the, they're, in, they're in the industry, but they don't have a business plan. And it's like I, some friends of mine who are like, I'm in the hole, tens of thousands of dollars, you know? And it's like, well, what? What were you doing? <laughs> you know, they started with the grapes and they made the wine and they didn't have an idea of how they were going to sell it. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to them about this, like, 
no, no, you kind of have it backwards. You should be working on like, who's your customer? And where are you going to sell? And then work your way backwards into what wine you want to make. And I think that has been interesting in that uh, some of them have been successful and they've taken off and their wine brands are doing really well. Um, some of them not and they're like, and I was kind of thinking, what were you doing? They're like, I just wanted to satisfy my own itch of making hobby wine. So I think it's important for people that are getting started in the industry is like, do you want to work for other people making wine like I do, right? So I, I work for a company and my job is definitely winemaking. Or do you want to have your own brand um, where you have more freedom, but you may be working more in like sales or different things. But it's very hard to be like, oh, I've got some good grapes and I'm just going to make great wine and it's just going to sell. And now I've incurred all these costs and because I haven't sold it, it's in barrel and now I'm in the hole. And um, so that is hard for me to watch because we should know that, you know, we're in the, it's a wine industry. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's kind of figuring out what, what people want to do. Um, whether they're in the li lifestyle of like, hey, I want to make a little bit of wine, and that's fantastic, go for that. You can do whatever you want to do. Or like, I want to sell this, and it must be $200 a bottle. Um, okay, good luck, you know, I mean, maybe they can do that. So um, it has been, um, it's been educational, it's been fun to see kind of some, some friends of mine, some brands are really successful, and they're doing their thing, and um, weathering these storms. But um, that is one thing I've, I wanted to talk about. I don't have any other stories. I mean, there's funny ones about interns usually, you know, things that, <laughs> things that they come and they do and they're just really entertaining to talk about. Um, but uh, I'll, save, I'll save that for when the camera's off probably. But uh, um, yeah. Just make our audience jealous here that we get to hear all those great stories. Well, I mean, everybody does. I mean, you, you work in a wine, winery for a while and you're like, remember that intern that did that thing? That was hilarious. So there's a lot of those. And they're, they're super energizing because you kind of remember, like you're, you're tired during harvest and then somebody does something you're like, oh man, they're, you're angry at the time, but then later you're like, that was funny. So. Awesome. Thank you so much for your Thank time you. today, for sharing your stories with us in this beautiful space. We appreciate that as well. And it's, uh, I'm just going to give a quick shout out to Willamette University here at the end because we are fellow Bearcats. And I don't meet very many in the industry. So that's awesome. Even though it's a Linfield thing, go Bearcats. And Thanks. we'll let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.